Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, it's Brendan here with Mark and it is the weekend in August the 3rd, 2018. Thank you for listening and don't forget to spread the news. Get your friends and colleagues to subscribe, vetgurus.com. Mark, what have you been up to this week? Anything of interest? Brendan, I've had, um, it's actually a really interesting topic I've got to talk to you about because um, it feeds back into, um, you've been hassling me to get punchier, to, to, to um, you know, with these podcasts, we can't be waffling on and just babbling like I always do. Um, and during the week, I had the, um, I don't know, the responsibility of, uh, of chairing quite a significant meeting uh, on a, in a teleconference format. And, geez, geez, it was different, Brendan. It was really different to, um, to have to uh, be a little bit um, curt and punchy and, and cut people off and move the meeting forward. Uh, teleconferences, I've, I've participated in some uh, where I've had to, you know, listen, but I'm, I'm so good at lurking that that's never been a problem. But actually running the meeting... Wow, it did, it did. I can understand why you don't want me to waffle. And so how long did it last for this meeting or is it still going, Mark? <laughs> it's, um, well, I did a little bit of research and there is actually published upper limits in time for uh, the use of teleconferences. If you go longer than an hour, um, then, you know, the utility of the meeting plummets dramatically apparently. <laughs> Um, and, um, and, of course, this meeting went for two hours, so second half of the meeting was, you know, probably a bit of a, a um, jumble, maybe not quite as useful as the first half. But, um, yeah, but it's very hard to make those meetings go as fast as you want them to. Yes, it's the responsibility, isn't it, Mark? The pressure of chairing those meetings. So, well, good on you for doing that. And um, you're a better man than I, um, spending all that time um, helping out with those particular meetings there. I must admit that I struggle sometimes with the meetings that I pretend to organise these <laughs> days. And, um, yeah, it's it's good to get them moving along and... Speaking of moving along, I think we should say thank you to one of our two main sponsors, and that is uh, Chemical Essentials, Mark, and Andrew from Chemical Essentials. And I'll just mention one of their products, um, so chemicalessentials.com.au is their website, and that is the F10 germicidal ointment. And I find this an interesting product, Mark, that's a sort of barrier ointment, and I have been playing around with this a little bit with some of the reptile cases, those opened granulating type wounds and um, burns in particular, Mark, using it as a as a treatment on those burns um, as a potential alternative to using something like the, the, the silverzine, the flamazine type ointment. And it seems to be quite a good product because it has a antibacterial as well as antifungal effect there and it seems to work quite well in helping those wounds granulate up. So... 
yeah, it's a good product to look at for those of you who um, haven't had any experience with it, the F10 germicidal ointment. It's a good one. Um, have you used it at all, Mark, in some of the unusual pets? I have indeed, much like you, Brendan. I've um, I've been – because the um, – the flamazine type ointments, you know, the specific action they have against Eremonas and Pseudomonas, making them useful for our reptiles and for burns cases in particular. Um, but that's an expensive product to, um, you know, to uh, to ask people to buy, um, and um, and it's very cost effective to use the uh, the F10 germicidal ointment, and um, and it does have. Uh, particularly useful spectrum of activity over those troublesome gram-negative rods. So, um, yes, we've been very pleased with using it, Brendan. Yes, a good product. And, yeah, we thank Chemical Essentials for our sponsorship um, and helping us out to pay or pay for our costs of the podcast. So let's keep being nice and punchy, Mark. I'm going to jump into the first news story. I'm going to take this one because this one is – a little bit of a shout-out to one of my part-time veterinarians, and that's Belinda. And Belinda is a dinosaur freak. She absolutely loves dinosaurs, and um, there's a growing collection of little model dinosaurs on the desk uh, that she uses at my clinic. Um, She absolutely adores dinosaurs. So this one's for you, Belinda, and this is that scientists have discovered a new, well, it's an old species, but a new species of armoured dinosaurs that lived 76 million years ago. And this was um, found in, where was it, Mark? It was in the US, in Utah, um, that it was found. And it was a Kynocephalus johnsoni. Um, and the um, fun thing I like about this particular dinosaur is that it is the old spiky head is the name that they um, have for this dinosaur. And they've done the the um, and I know most people have probably seen the mock-ups of the of of the flesh and um, and the skin that they put over the skeleton um, that they reconstruction of of what he looks like. And old Spikey is yeah, quite old Spikey because he has lots of or she or she has lots of arm armament around um, the head area. So yeah, it's a cute little um, cute little story, and um, I just love all the little. And they virtually found the whole fossil of this um, this dinosaur there in Utah. And there's a little video that goes with it that we'll link to in our show notes, Mark. And um, I found it quite fascinating. So that one's there for you, um, Belinda. I told you I would put a story on about dinosaurs soon, and and there you go. Um, You may not get another one for a fair while, but there you go. That's a little dinosaur story. So that's story number one, Mark. And story number one, just um, to finish that off, Brendan, I just was I was looking at the um, the artist rendition of uh, the you know the fleshed out um, uh, um, what what uh, um, old spiky head would look like, Um, and I just wanted to quickly mention that um, in trolling around on. um, um, particularly on Twitter, I've come across a subculture. There's a group of um, paleontologist artists who do nothing but um, draw or paint or um, craft um, uh, uh, um, images of dinosaurs, how they move, um, uh, what they might look like, colour them in. Um, it's an entire, like, um, recreation for a whole bunch of people. It looks like that... Um, 
uh, beautiful painting is one of the reconstructions from this um, subculture of people who spend all their time imagining what dinosaurs would look like. Well, maybe one one day they'll come to our conference and um, imagine what uh, do a painting of you and I, Mark, <laughs> and we'll see what we look like yeah. when we're fleshed out like we were young youngsters <laughs> again. Hey? Yes. Okay, so uh, story number two. I know, Mark. I've waffled. I've waffled. I've missed my cue. Story number two. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, story number two is um, uh, once again. Uh, it's a bit of a downer. Um, it. Uh, is a story uh, that um, is talking about um, how the pet trade uh, is one of the factors that's contributing to um, uh, extinction. And we already know that um, uh, global biodiversity is suffering dramatically, particularly as a result of habitat destruction, um, hunting uh, for meat, particularly in um, subsistence continents where subsistence is important. Um, there's a huge number of species that are threatened by these uh, uh, external factors, but one of the ones that um, that probably uh, is a bit underrated is the um, the capture of threatened species for trade, both um, both uh, alive as pets or even exhibits in some unscrupulous zoos or Dead, obviously, the you know for the use in uh, herbal medicines or remedies, um, and while we've become increasingly aware of the trouble uh, for animals like elephants or rhinos, tigers, pangolins, um, it's amazing how uh, the um, the sort of lesser known our, our little reptiles and amphibians um, how. Uh, they're, they're significantly affected by um, the pet trade. And I was stunned, Brendan. You know how um, you know how, yes. how how much it takes to, to make me say those words. I was stunned. Um, <laughs> in the time between 2000 and 2006, in the United States alone, um, there was 1,480 uh, 1, million animals imported into the US uh, for the pet trade. Um, nearly 70% of these animals originated in Southeast Asia. Um, and so many, you know, pet stockists, aquariums, um, those sort of places, particularly in the US, um, you would think that they were um, having captive bred animals when in fact the vast majority are harvested from the wild and often laundered to appear like they have been bred in captivity. Um, so uh, this is a particularly in, uh, I know one of, um, the, uh, one of the researchers in Australia who has discovered some of the new species of frogs in the mountains of, um, of uh, Southeast Asia and Vietnam and Cambodia, they've uh, where these uh, isolated pockets of animals, rare animals, have been discovered, they now are not even publishing where those uh, those animals have been discovered for fear that uh, um, poachers will come in and, and take the last of them, their, their rarity uh, being such a commodity amongst um, people who, who want to keep these animals. And, of course, we know, um, you and I in particular know, that so many of the um, the reptiles that do end up being kept in captivity, a significant proportion of them 
Um, don't uh, let's. How should we put it, Brendan? They may not make a uh, a life. You know, they might not have a long life in captivity. Yes, and I, I was staggered as you were with with those uh, statistics there, Mark, and in, a, even with the birds they mentioned further down in the article, an estimated three point three million bird species, birds from Southeast Asia, and one point three million from Indonesia alone go to the pet trade um, in the US. Um, yeah, it's um, it's certainly pretty sobering and sad. Um, facts and statistics there mark and uh, as you know I, I deal occasionally with some of the confiscated animals that come from the state department here from from um animals that are found at airports and and tr- people trying to smuggle um illegal pets in and out um and wildlife in particular out um of australia and um I saw another load of them um, recently, and it was just really sad the the way they're sort of handled. You know, they're just a commodity, and they're they're literally trussed up. These animals, the lizards, for instance, are, are just taped and bound up with their legs. You know, with with, with tape, um, and just just packed in like um, like peas in a can, Mark. And yeah, it's um, it's not nice, is it? Um, and I don't know what the answer is to all of this. You know, because we talk about to our clients about um, keeping species that are native animals or, 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 or keeping ones that are bred in captivity, and yet you look at this sort of article that talks about the trade in in, in pets um, and the volume of these animals um, that are potentially bred illegally and, and the ones that are bred illegally. Um, I don't know what the solution is, Mark. Maybe we shouldn't be having any of these pets. And I know we've spoken about this before, um, about the possibility the ideal situation is we don't have any pets of any kind. Is that the solution? Well, it, I know it's a drastic and um, you know, sort of runs counter to the, the whole, you know, thrust of the, the effort in our whole lives. But um, it does, the the, the to create the change that we think we need, there has to be drastic solutions sought. And geez, I don't know, Brendan, the avarice, the the um, as you said, the commodification. Um, so many people involved in this trade don't treat the animals as they as they should be treated, and um, only treat them as a, a source of income. Um, and the the uh, you know the the nature of the people at the end of the trade um, isn't always. They aren't always the sort of people who hold the animals' well-being at the at the, para, the top of the pyramid. So yeah, I don't maybe I don't know maybe there there is a an argument to be said that certain animals should never be pets. Maybe most animals should never be pets. Um, it's difficult to know how people will connect with the wild if they um, if they can't uh, if they can't have some form of connection like this but geez this sort of connection isn't uh, beneficial for uh, wild animals or wilderness is it yes and my dogs are sad mark my oh, dogs no. are very sad um from what you just said because if i got rid of my dogs they would be sad and not just because they're not around with us it's because our next article talks about how dogs know when we're sad and they have empathy and they know when, and it's a good little study that was done, um, and I think it's telling us things we already know, that dogs instinctively know when we are in distress. Um, 
I don't know whether that's what happens with my dogs. They tend to just sit here and roll their <laughs> eyes when I'm talking, Mark. So I don't know whether that's empathy <laughs> or, or, or distaste or disdain um, in in the sorts of jokes I'm trying to say, probably because I've heard all my jokes um, so many times, Mark. But yes, um, a dog's empathy shines through. This article talks about in that if they did this little experiment when people were crying and they had the dogs in the other room and then the dogs became distressed and wanted to rush to the side of their owners um, and um, can give them the condolences and, and, um, and be with them. Um, and, um, yeah, so I don't want to get rid of my dogs, Mark, even though I just mentioned that maybe we shouldn't be having pets there, Mark. But um, that was article number three, um, dogs know when it's sad and they rush to help. Um, and it talks about how dogs are tuned to humans' emotions, Mark. So there we go, number three. So do you're on a bit of a downer this week, aren't we? Do, um, what I want to know, Brendan, is um, you've talked about a number of these studies. I reckon we've got to figure a way where we can do one of these studies where we already know the likely outcome, but the um, often elegant and thoughtful way um, that people figure out um, these things, I think um, we should get one of these jobs. We should uh, do a research project where we um, confirm the empathy in our in our uh, dogs or the absence of empathy in our cats. Whatever whatever research project we need, we should get onto it. Yes, we must. Let's add it to the list of things we need <laughs> to do, Mark. We've got an increasingly long list of to do haven't we? And our next to-do is new story number four, Mark, and I think it is, is a positive story, so far away. It is a positive story, and it's one I feel a particular connection to. It's the um, story of the birth of the first sun bear cub in, um, in the U- UK. Um, the uh, sun bears were snatched by poachers. The, the two parents were snatched by poachers in Cambodia, they were rescued and then transferred to Chester Zoo in the UK. Um, their names are Millie and Tony. Um, and um, they, were, uh, they were trapped when they were young. Their parent, their mother, was killed and they were kept as pets for a period of time, so they were not able to be released. Um, but the pair eventually got to uh, uh, Chester Zoo um, and now they're the parents of a healthy cub. I have a particular connection um, for sun bears because I have had the pleasure of seeing them in the wild in Borneo, um, and I did a little bit of an externship. I know you worked in the zoo industry in a paid capacity, Brendan, but I did an unpaid informal externship for a number of months at Taronga, and um, one of the pleasures of that and exercise was to spend some time with the the uh, sun bears they have there um they sun bears obviously get their name from the yellowish patch on their chest which resembles a rising sun um and they're um and they're definitely one of the world's rarest bears so a new birth in the system is a winner a nice positive story mark to finish our little for news articles and i think we need to start on our main topic mark and as some of you have may guessed it is about respiratory diseases in rodents especially rats and mice so we see so many of these to me i think it is probably the most common reason why we have rats 
and mice presented to our clinic, Mark, for consultations is because of respiratory disease. Number two would be the the mammary tumours, I expect, um, but we see so many of these. So I think what we'll do is we'll walk through um, our thoughts on these um, particular, this syndrome, Mark, um, respiratory disease in rats and mice. So, Mark, why don't you jump ahead? I'm going to throw you in the deep end here and quiz you as usual. And um, what sort of, how are they presented, Mark? Why would a client bring a rat or a mouse to the clinic um, for potential respiratory disease well the i am i've over the months brendan i've gotten used to you quizzing me and i no longer have any fear of failure i've failed so regularly um what the rats uh that have respiratory disease are presented just as you would expect they um are presented uh with uh breathing difficulty um they often are not at the stage where they're in extremis, but um, often rat owners are pretty observant and they often have pretty close proximity to their pets. The rats will wander around on their body, for example, um, so they actually are pretty close to them. And so relatively subtle changes in behaviour coupled with the increased respiratory effort and rate are often quite apparent. And that's probably the, uh, the you know, the rats become a little bit um, inert and less active, um, obviously, as they struggle to get oxygen to uh, their vital organs. Um, and then they're making a significant um, effort. Uh, it's quite apparent, the little short pumpy breaths that um, they, they it actually is quite distressing to watch. Um, uh, some of these rats will be slightly overweight and so um, seeing them shift that body mass so rapidly and uh, urgently to transfer oxygen can be a little bit distressing. And so it's often a thing that motivates people to take action relatively quickly once it gets to that stage. The difficult thing, Brendan, the really difficult thing is that... Um, by the time the rats are showing these signs, um, it's it's the disease is significantly progressed. By the time a rat uh, is actually making this increased respiratory effort and maybe having some of those other signs associated with stress, the uh, porphyria, um, either from the nose or the eyes, those sorts of things happen uh, once the disease has progressed significantly, unfortunately. Um, so the signs are um, re- readily apparent, but they rarely occur at the beginning of the disease, in my experience. Are you with me, Brendan? <laughs> are you off having a drink of beer, Brendan? No, <laughs> I've done my usual there. I had my microphone on mute mark you'd think after 40 what 41 episodes 42 episodes i'd be i'd be out of the habit but no i'm not out of that habit um yes i'm with you mark i am with you and i think it leads into my my comments on the second um second point with respiratory disease in rats and mice is that um we often and that's the incidence of it which is very high and that we often pick them up and I'm sure you do too Mark um, pick up the early signs the ones that aren't clinically unwell um, when they come in for the health check and it may be a rat that's coming in for a pre 
pre D sex in um health check and it's um obviously sneezing or, or getting the snicking um or the upper respiratory signs that we see in them. Um and the owner purchased the rat or the mice with those signs and they 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 may not even regard it as abnormal um for that animal. And as soon as it comes into the consult room, you know it's a, another rat or a mouse with chronic respiratory disease sitting there in the background. Um, and I think the good news with some of these ones is um, th- those ones are with those mild upper respiratory signs that may persist um, for the whole life of that rat is that um, they can plug away quite nicely and they may not necessarily um, deteriorate with those ones. So, yeah, so the the other ones that I just wanted to mention are the signs of the ones that come in for other conditions and you pick up the the mild respiratory, the non-clinical, I suppose, is, is, is what you might um, mention with the with the um, respiratory disease because, yeah, the incidence is, is quite high, isn't it, Mark? And I think with when you look at some of the published research on respiratory disease in in pet rats and mice it it varies from anything from 20 to 30 percent to way over 50 to 60 70 percent of them will have these organisms sitting in their respiratory tract potentially waiting to explode and cause problems or 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 maybe sit there forever and never be an issue um do you find the same mark we definitely do brendan we uh, and I, my my impression amongst our um, rodent keeping clients is that um, the, the the rate has probably increased from you know something around thirty percent to well over fifty percent now. Um, that uh, and and it's definitely you know it, it's an infectious problem, and so in those pet stores where hygiene may not uh, be a um, uh, uh, a high priority, um, and while it's a an infectious problem, it's also impacted by those other environmental factors: the the ammonia in the enclosure, the um, that uh, is the result of um, uncleaned urine, the dust from the bedding in certain circumstances. All these things can combine together to uh, create a problem, and uh, and our experience is that. It's on the rise, at least amongst our clients in Newcastle. Yes, we we certainly see a a lot of them. And one of the common questions we have from the owners of these, whether they're just doing the odd sneeze in their, their or their pets, um, <laughs> or their more severe respiratory disease case, is how can I prevent this, or how um, can I? Can you recommend? a breeder or a place where I can purchase a rat or a mouse that is free of respiratory disease. And my bottom line answer to that is no, I don't think there is such a thing, Mark, unless you, I suppose, um, went out and and purchased a laboratory rat um, that um, probably is going to have other issues because you're pulling it out of a laboratory situation where it hasn't been exposed to any any pathogens and then it's probably going to fall in a heap. So it's it's endemic in the pet rat and mouse population. So uh, um, the, the bad news with that is apart from trying to trying to source your rats and mice from a, a reputable breeder um, and not somebody who has a, a rodent farm, um, a bit like the puppy and kitten farms. Um, it's it's difficult, I think. Um, yeah, so it's it's problematic. So that I think the next thing we need to chat about is 
you know, how do what, how do we deal with these? And I might answer how I work up these cases, Mark, <laughs> or what I recommend as the ideal workup for them to the clients that come in with the with the respiratory rat that that is struggling to breathe, that is obviously in some distress. And my my ideal workup for them would be a combination of things. The obvious one there is a, a clinical examination and having a really good listen to that chest of that rat and trying to auscultate um, the, the chest correct properly and, and also trying to differentiate whether or not we have upper respiratory tract signs that are referred to um, the chest area, whether we have a combination of upper or, or lower respiratory tract signs, um, looking for other illnesses in that rat. So um, forgetting about the respiratory signs that's coming in for and and, and um, as we mentioned in our last episode, um, trying to pick up all the other issues that we have in that patient in front of me. And then I typically recommend um, two or three things. Um, my ideal workup is uh, anaesthetising that rat um, and taking plain radiographs of the chest. And for the more serious ones, I'd be doing a, a tap of the chest, so doing a fine needle aspirate of the chest. Um, I think the ideal with most species is doing a, a bronchoalveolar lavage, so doing a sterile flush of fluids down into the into the um, trachea there and um, sloshing it around and, and getting a sample back. But um, I don't know about you, Mark, but I find that quite quite risky in these patients. So I rarely, if ever, do that. And if I'm trying to get a sample to send off to culture um, and find out what organisms organisms are in there, I do that from a fine needle aspirate from the chest um, while it's anaesthetised. Um, and I'll do a, 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 um, a general blood screen um, and I'll suck that blood out while I have that rat anaesthetised. So that's my sort of standard workup that I recommend for them. Not that a great percentage of the clients will go for that and, and it depends on, on obviously the costs involved and, and their their budget but also um, what how severe the signs are in that patient and they might just consider let's just try do a treatment trial um, with that particular patient. Um, what's your standard recommendations for the workups, Mark, and is there any other aspect of the workup that I've Missed that you regularly recommend to clients for these cases? Well, we as as is usually the case, we're probably pretty much on the same page, Brendan, singing from the same songbook. Um, I we do uh, we much like you, I think we struggle a little bit to get a lot of our clients to um, to go the whole hog, as it were. And uh, and while we do recommend radiographs to give us a bit of an idea of the stage of change in the lungs. Um, we don't like doing, um, much like you, we don't like doing bronchial lavage. It, uh, um, uh, it is uh, um, in the relatively small volume of the chest of a rat. It's a risky procedure and, and often difficult to, um, to guarantee a decent yield of uh, um, the stuff that's sloshed back end. Also, a lot of the, the organisms that cause problems are not um, necessarily floating um, on the surface of the respiratory tract. There. Some of them will be, but um, some of the more problematic ones will be in the connective tissue sector that develop between the lungs. And so, like you, we find um, aspirates uh, um, through the chest wall to be uh, more useful um, and less risky, surprisingly, diagnostic aid. Um, 
but we do we really struggle to get people to um uh, to go for all those procedures and and uh, to be honest i don't know that i can tell you how it it certainly gives us some um, a little bit of a chance to stage some aspects of the um of the treatment we're going to use um but um but we're often trying to throw a significant amount of treatment at these guys, uh, irrespective of um, of those findings. Um, so it is. I've, I do struggle to um, uh, encourage people to go down the full diagnostic pathway. Yes, I agree. It, um, re- despite what I said previously in that a large majority of them even though i say that's the ideal workup i think the difficulty is not just the potential increased costs involved in that and 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 possibly also increased risk of giving it that anesthetic it's also the 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 lack of results you do get which is what you hinted at there and that we may do it an aspirate and and get what we think is a decent sample and it comes back as um, didn't culture anything and I think there's two aspects to that. One is what you just mentioned, that that we're not getting a a sample from the area that may um, be where the bugs are but it's also the organisms involved. It can be um, quite fastidious with their growth, growth and quite difficult to to culture as well mark so um we may spend all the time and money and effort in trying to do the ideal diagnostics and work up with them and yet we get zero back as far as what information we get back from that so i must admit the majority of these cases um initially at least um, we do the treatment trials and that's what we'll probably talk about next mark um and it's probably the ones that aren't responding or are deteriorating des- despite our best e- efforts with the medications, they're the ones that we eventually get to the stage where they, I, I ask the clients they need to bite the bullet one way or the other. We need to then get stuck into the further diagnostics and do the basic bloods if that hadn't been done previously in case we've got underlying other concurrent diseases or trying to get the samples and and the radiographs and looking at those chests and seeing how severe they are or to consider euthanizing that patient and um, rather than just keep filling it full of of medication so I think that's the process I normally do with with the vast majority of them. I do recommend the ideal, you know, work up initially, and we do get some takers with that. But but the, the probably at least two thirds, if not eighty percent of them, um, initially we go down, starting them on some treatment, and once it gets to the stage that they're struggling to respond to our treatments, which we'll talk about in a sec, the treatment aspects, um, then we go down the track of um, considering those other diagnostics there. So speaking of treatments, Mark, let's just talk, I suppose, generically rather than going into great detail about all the different antibiotics, et cetera. Um, what, what, what sort of uh, medications would you consider in these cases, Mark? What seems to help? Well, I think that I would say, the first thing I would say is that there's a little bit of a battle in the, the first stage of treating these because many of the people that come to us um, have done a little bit of doctor googling, and there is a, a, a fair, in this particular area of veterinary medicine, there is a, a large amount of information online, and uh, and so people will come to us with very explicit requests for particular antibiotics, um, and uh, and I've got to say that um, while 
treatment rarely, rarely, if ever, affects a complete cure, um, treatment definitely makes a big difference to the length and quality of life of patients that are dealing with these things. So I think um, the medication we use is critically important. Um, and while there's a focus initially on antibiotics, and we should get back to that in a minute, I um, really in the first instance, um, we're probably talking to people about, um, you know, uh, trying to decrease inflammation, um, trying to increase the, um, the, uh, the diameter of the airways using bronchodilators and, um, and moistening the inflamed airways. Um, all the things that are done in human uh, pulmonary disease to improve the, uh, the ease with which people can breathe and their quality of life as a consequence. Um, so they're probably the first things we talk about. We do use meloxicam in these guys um, in an attempt to decrease the inflammation associated with uh, chronic respiratory disease. Um, we also, uh, we've been probably, we used a lot of um, theophylline uh, as a um, compounded theophylline as one of our early um, treatments, but I, I do find that, um, that it often is difficult to administer and often makes the rats feel, I don't know, my clinical impression is they don't feel as um, well with the theophylline on board. Um, and so we've been looking at uh, various um, you know, uh, forms of Ventolin, uh, albuterol, um, and the ways that we might be able to administer that. Um, but once again, it can be... Uh, we really want to be careful about the doses we give the and the stress medicating those uh, those rats. That the, the uh, difficulty in getting it into them can be a little bit of a problem. Um, and we're often doing all that before we get to the point where we're talking about antibiotics, Brendan. Yes, yes. Well, we have I have a similar situation with what I recommend with my clients in that we do tend to put, place most, if not all of them, on the anti-inflammatory, so the meloxicam. And I do find that has a, a pretty good effect in a, in a fair number of the market. And I think part of that may be the analgesic effect as well because I think some of these are really struggling and quite sore at least um, a little bit painful with 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 what's happening there and it seems to ease them up a bit and I've found that especially with the ones that have only just been placed on antibiotics that a large percentage of them that you place on the meloxicam they do dramatically um, seem to improve according to the owners so we certainly use a fair bit of that as far as the bronchodilators yes same story um the one that we tend to compound up is the aminillin um, and we get reasonable results with some of them. Some of them seem to be dramatically improved and others that seem not to make much difference at all. And, yes, it is difficult trying to balance the pumping these animals full of these medications and the compliance aspect of getting the patient to take these medications um, where we may be giving three or four or five medications or the client is and the stress of trying to get those medications into that animal. Um, because one of the other things that's commonly mentioned um, with these 
owners um, by these owners is do I separate it from its little cage mate and the answer is always no because we're worried about the stress response with them and if they're going to be unhappy not being with their little cage mate is just going to contribute to the to the issue and the stress and the respiratory disease that's happening with this animal yeah so similar process that we, we use with the antibiotics yes I think there's we could potentially talk all all day, night, morning, evening, depending on when you're listening to the podcast, Mark, um, about the particular antibiotics. My, my sort of main message with that would be that the main one that most people consider is um, use, adding doxycycline um, for two reasons. One is that it tends to be active against the organisms that, that are usually implicated in the respiratory disease in rats and mice, but it also um, has, a, has a secondary effect as an anti-inflammatory agent, even though it's an antibiotic, and so it does help open up those airways a little bit, Mark. Um, and doxycycline is quite good at getting through the biofilm that's sitting um, in the lungs there near the alveoli and along the passageways of the respiratory tract so it can get through that muck to help um, attack those organisms. So if you are going to choose one particular antibody, that's certainly the one I would be um, recommending that you reach for first. And then we've got lots of other sorts of antibiotics that have been tried and some seem to work quite well in some patients and not in others. So um, I think we've sort of jumped ahead of ourselves because when we talk about the causes of um, respiratory disease in rats and mice, it's multifactorial and that's the thing we need to get across to clients and that there's potentially several different things happening or causing it which can end up being a combination of, of bacteria, um, potentially viruses as well. And, uh, you know, the main one that people always implicate is the mycoplasma organisms as well with them. So it's a multifactorial disease. So it means that one particular medication or agent is almost certainly not going to help. And, and that means the bottom line with the mark, I think, and I think you... you, you um, certainly preach this to your clients is it's control rather than cure so what we're trying to do is make our patients um, comfortable and we're, it's almost it's virtually palliative care with the ones that are more severe and, and with the ones that aren't quite as severe we, we may be putting them on short bursts of the medications to try and clear the clinical signs and expecting that those signs will come back whether it's tomorrow next week or next month but uh, a large percentage of them those signs will be back again in the future and I think that's one thing that we play around with a little bit. I don't know whether you do, Mark. Um, pulse therapy, so a few days on, a few days off of the medication seems to work in some patients and not in others. Um, others need to be on medication from the day we first see that patient to the day it's euthanized. Um, and um, some are in between. Some do quite well for medication for a few weeks and we take them off the medication and they're, they're clear of the clinical signs for many weeks or, or potentially months if we're lucky. But I think most of them, it, 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 it gets them in the end, Mark. Um, is that what you find? Precisely the same, Brendan. And look, I think um, we do, uh, because of the stress, if we've got one of those early ones where they probably are a little bit more focused on the upper respiratory tract than, than lower and, um, and, the, uh, and it's the first time we see a rat, we will go with... Uh, we often go with a relatively long course uh, in the first instance, maybe uh, four or six weeks, 
Um, it might be a um, you know just doxycycline on its own or um, a combination of antibiotics, depending on the case. Um, but although once we have them relapse, then we do find that we need to tailor um, tailor the treatment um, and the antibiotic. And there definitely is that we've had cases where we have cultured the um, the organ that you know is the samples multiple times, and after they've you know unsurprisingly after they've been on antibiotics for a particular length of time the susceptibility, the sensitivity pattern of the isolates um, changes. And so um, it's not a surprise that over time um, the initial antibiotics that are used might not be as effective and it's uh, wise to have a few things up your sleeve when um, we get to those later stages. Um, and we do, as we get to those later stages, because... Uh, we know we're not going to affect a cure. We're trying to control clinical signs. It is one of the very, very rare circumstances where we will use pulse therapy with uh, antibiotics. And as you said, uh, you know, four or five days on and a week off and uh, keep the, uh, the animals comfortable that way. Yes. And the other, I think the other aspect that we tend to push, especially with that early on, um, in the disease process with them is the preventative health aspects to it and and the husbandry aspects, Mark, and you touched on one of them and that was the, the potential ammonia um, that um, may be an issue there. So it's, it, it's hygiene, it, it's um, it's airflow within the um, the enclosure um, for that animal, making sure that it's not, and it's, I don't know about you, Mark, but I've seen some pr or pictures of some pretty amazing <laughs> rat castles and and rat enclosures that people have built and some of them are fantastic and some of them are absolutely appalling um for instance i've seen a few where people have made a, a rat enclosure just out of a, a chest of drawers or a cupboard um and they've just cut a little hole in the drawer and then um, that's where the rat lives and they've virtually got no ventilation for that particular little ratty. So that's not a good enclosure for them. And so we've got all these fumes and the ammonia fumes from the urine and feces that um, if they're not cleaning out that little enclosure, very often then it will contribute to the respiratory distress of that particular patient. Um, so we concentrate on that. We, we talk about general cleaning, um, um, not just the airflow. We also talk about diet. So as with all disease processes, if, if that animal is on a poor diet, then obviously their immune system may not be 100%. Um, so we, we get back to basics and talk to them about the basic diet for rats. And, yeah, we... We certainly see a lot of fat rats, as as you do, Mark. So we um we 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 really concentrate on that aspect as well with them. So it's um it's trying to think about the 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 semi the related issues that are not directly related to the treatment aspects of that particular patient. Are there any other sort of aspects as far as the husbandry that have that I've missed there, Mark, that you commonly mentioned? To the no, clients? you've been completely and utterly, you know, covered every point very well, Brendan. Um, I do that the, we, one of the questions we frequently get asked about uh, husbandry and the relationship with respiratory disease in rats is um, one of the common substrates that's sold is uh, pine shavings um, and the volatile oils in some of the softwoods that are, uh, might be swept up, um, they, 
they can be a uh, contributing factor. And so while they might look uh, relatively clean and dust-free, um, even substrates like that can uh, can just be enough of an irritation to our uh, affected rats that it sets off. Absolutely. I mean, we, my, my standard recommendations for substrate for rats and mice is just the, the simple um, recycled newspaper cat mm. litter that they can just purchase from the supermarket um, or, or the pet store. And I, I find them quite um, absorbent um, and, and very cheap. And, yeah, um, depending on which particular brand you get, some of them are a little bit dusty, but... Um, I think they work quite well, um, and which reminds me of one little thing that I often usually recommend to to clients is when they're cleaning out their rodent enclosures that they leave a little bit of the nest um, that they have made and keep that. And when they do their disinfection and the clean of the enclosure, whether they're doing it every few days or once a week, that they take out a little bit of the nest that the rat or the mouse has made and take that out of the enclosure and put that back in because they like to have a little bit of their homely smell there, Mark. And I think if we sterilise that enclosure every week or every few days and pop the rat back in the new enclosure, even though it's nice and sterile and clean, we may be causing a bit of distress to their little ratty or mousy. Do you recommend that sort of thing to clients? Funnily enough, it was something that we never used to spend a lot of time talking about, but um, but we have... uh, particularly um, notice that uh, that it is, you know, the rats will become agitated in a perfectly clean new enclosure. They'll, um, they'll uh, be very agitated, wander around, um, and that certainly can upset them more um, than, than, you know, just retaining a bit of that bedding in one corner, making sure that it's stuff that's not horribly soiled, uh, but that it has the odours that they're familiar with. Um, and particularly if it's some of their nesting, you know, the, the nest that they'll make. Um, and uh, as long as it's not horribly soiled and smelling powerfully of ammonia, um, I think hanging on to that really does make them feel a little bit more comfortable and familiar um, and happy to be in that closure. And, and it makes them feel relaxed. And so they're not panting and breathing hard. So, um, yep, we're, we're saying once again, same songbook, Brendan. We're virtually saying the same thing. I reckon we could do this podcast with just one of us. You could, you could do it, and then just pretend to be me at certain times. Change your voice a little I bit. Was, I was going to say the opposite, actually, Mark, and that I'll just go and um, have a little lie down, and you can do the rest of the podcast. So we 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 we've touched on um, some of the basics of the treatment um, aspects there, Mark. So we've spoken about the antibiotics and the bronchodilators um, but and you did touch on briefly the the um, ventolin type um, products there mark what's your recommendations for when to use them and how do you get the rats to take their little puffers oh. mark do we have a have you invented a little puffer that the vat can um, put over its um, face <laughs> to take a little puff yes i no i haven't not at all um <laughs> and and it is a genuine problem because um, the uh, using the the uh, puffers, the the um, the human um, dose uh, um, albuterol or uh, whichever one of those uh, puffers you use, um, you do have to be a little bit um, a bit careful. Um, and to be honest, like most things I do in my professional life, 
I look to people like you, Brendan, who are much wiser and uh, cleverer than me, and um, and I copy. I hugely plagiarise and take advantage of um, of the uh, skills and experience of um, people much smarter than myself. And in this instance, I I'm perfectly happy to give credit where credit's due. Um, we have taken advantage of the protocol that. Uh, um, an expatriate Australian, Thomas Donnelly, um, uh, who does a, what, a lot of work um, in uh, the laboratory animal field and brings an awful lot of um, evidence-based science to uh, laboratory animal uh, veterinary care. Um, and, yes, we um, use a, 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 you know, a two-litre Coke bottle um, and we... Um, uh, give it a good scrub so it's not sticky on the inside. We cut the bottom out, um, and um, and then we uh, get a little um, anaesthetic adapter, and one of those rubber adapters that fits to the top, um, and um, and we place the rabbit, uh, the rabbit, the rat in the um, uh, the um, lemonade, the Coke bottle, um, and. Um, cover the bottom with the cut-off bit that we've used to seal it off, um, attach the puffer to the end, um, and depending on the dose we want to use, um, we um, uh, um, put a, you know, one to three puffs, depending on the, the size of the rat and the dose we want to use, into there, and we give the, um, the rat a particular uh, time to sit in there. Um, we generally aim for something only about... Um, five minutes, four minutes, and um, and then uh, let the rat out and um, go about its business. It seems to be a least stress way to, um, you know, rather than catching them up and holding them and putting them a little mask over their face, um, uh, it seems to work particularly well for us to uh, um, use. A, and you know what I'm like, a bit of a MacGyver in the, in the, um, the you know, hospital. I crank out the Dremel and muck around with... Uh, chopping and changing, grab a little bit of your fencing wire and wrangle things together. So um, the uh, the freshly washed Coke bottle, plastic Coke bottle for this purpose works excellently in our hands. Any excuse to have another bottle of Coke, <laughs> Mark? Is that, um, Any is excuse. that um, the bottom line there? Um, well, we guess what? Similar to what I recommend to clients here and um that's um, of interest to some of our listeners. Um, Tom Donnelly will be coming out to Australia and speaking at our conference this year, Mark, in Adelaide. So he is locked in for giving a presentation to the veterinary nurses stream or, or technicians stream and also the vets stream. Um, so that's late in November in Australia. So if anybody's interested in travelling out to see Tom and to say hi to Brendan and Mark, um, drop us a line at vetgurus um, at gmail.com and we'll give you the details of the conference there, yes. So um, I often recommend exactly the same to my clients there um, with giving them the puffer um, dose for their rats. But I tend to recommend, Mark, that, that they keep the puffer for the more severe situations when they're having a bit of a, a distressed um, attack there. And um, I'm, I'm, 
I'm convinced that some of these rats do exactly what some humans do when they, they're struggling to be, breathe. They go into a panic attack and um, they're the ones that I think um, do quite well um, and resp- seem to respond quite well to um, using the, the Ventolin-type products with them. Um, and the other products that we sort of haven't touched on, Mark, which we should touch on um, briefly is um, vaporizers and um, the potential use of vaporizers so vaporizing um, medication so um, using our um, antibiotics um, in them do you recommend those we definitely do recommend um, uh, vaporizers nebulizers um Nebulizers, sorry, not vaporizers. Yeah, so I suppose for our yeah, good point, Mark. For our listeners, um, the distinction between the vaporizers and nebulizers, because I often get clients saying, "I have used a vaporizer," and they these are those basic vaporizers that you can get from the chemist um, for children. So you might put a bit of eucalyptus oil in, in the little. It's basically a kettle, yes. isn't it, Mark? That um, boils and it produces steam. And I remember, gee, the good old days when my girls were young and they had a bit of a cough and a sputter and they wouldn't breathe through their mouth and they'd be distressed um, with the cold or the flu. We'd have the, the vaporizer there cranking away with the eucalyptus. Did you put a towel over their head, Brendan? That's what we did to our children, um, put the vaporizer um, down on the ground, put a towel over their head. It's probably, it's yes. probably. I hope it was only a towel and not a pillow over their head, Mark, that you were doing, yes. Um, no, well, no, we didn't. Um, I think they would have just thrown it off if we tried that with our two girls um so um yeah so we often get clients that will say oh i've used a a vaporizer and it it seems to help a little bit but the the bad news with that is it it isn't as good or it doesn't work the same as a nebulizer so for those of you who aren't used to who who don't remember the mechanics or the physics of them the the nebulizers important point is nebulizers the nebulization process is it's getting the particles of water or whatever product we've got into a small enough particle that um, gets down to sort of nanometer size that can get into the alveoli and the vaporizer won't do that it will have really big water particles or steam particles and they might help with a bit of an upper respiratory tract and the blocked nose but they certainly won't get the medications down deeper into the airways and that's where the nebulizers do the trick, don't they, Mark? So, yeah, I, I rudely cut you off there when you started talking about You're nebulizers. You're never rude, Brendan. So, um, we often recommend them. So um, do you find clients um, have good results with using the nebulizers, Mark? Definitely. And for exactly the reason that you outlined in describing the physics, that the tiny, tiny, tiny droplets that are produced by the nebulizer penetrate way down where the problem is. And so they can carry the medications, whether it's uh, nebulized antibiotics or, um, and one of the advantages once we've got a serious case of nebulizing them is that um, it can lessen the distress of medicating them. And so trying to grab them and wrestle them and poke a little syringe or whatever into their uh, mouth it, it and particularly if they're right on the brink of uh, decompensating with oxygen um, having anything that lessens that really improves their quality of life and so uh, first of all it means that um, that they don't have to be wrestled to be medicated um, and secondly um, the the, the 
the physical way that the increased humidity breaks down that biofilm you were talking about before, deep in the um, the uh, airways, the uh, added moisture getting into the mucus and protein and uh, helping the normal uh, respiratory elevator effect to discharge it from the respiratory tract um, just clinically makes them feel better, let alone the effect of the antibiotics being applied directly to the surface as the bugs are on. Almost invariably, the animals that are nebulized uh, improve. So um, we do reserve it for those ones that are at the later stages, but um, definitely a, a treatment modality we like to prepare clients for in the early stages and uh, make sure they're all set to go once we reach the stage where it's necessary. Yes, and and as you mentioned, it may be simply using hypertonic saline. I think so. one I, I usually recommend if we're not adding any other products into it. So just nebulizing with hypertonic saline seems to work quite well with them. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's amazing how, how, how much trouble some clients will go to potentially care for their rats, Mark. And I think I've mentioned to you before, my, my classic client actually is no, I haven't seen him for many years is a avid rat lover that he would spend enormous amounts of money on trying to look after his little rest and these were all rescue rats and virtually all of them as we've have we spoken about here um ended up having respiratory diseases and he literally had um oxygen piped throughout his house um into each room and he had little boxes and enclosures including in the bedroom where he could if he had one of his ratties that was struggling he could um turn on the little oxygen flow in in whichever room he and the ratty were in and and pop the little um ratty in the oxygen tent or oxygen enclosure there so that's dedication mark um go into that aspect um with looking after your ratties um he was quite a um Quite a character, this um, this person. Um, he was a um, yeah. I won't mention what he was. Two interesting points to me. The first one, you and I've talked about this many times before. That you just never want to judge what people are prepared to do for their animals and rats, in particular rats. Um, uh, there doesn't, you know, there it would seem intuitively logical that the amount of time people get to spend with their animals is going to you know be proportional to their emotional investment so for a dog that they're with for 16 or 17 years that's a couple of decades out of their life they're going to be deeply attached to that animal um, and they're going to be highly motivated to do a lot to improve its quality of life but despite the fact that rats only live for you know two three four maybe five years at the outside in a geriatric, an extreme geriatric rat, the quality of time they spend with their owners builds bonds that um, really belie the short lifespan that they have. And, and as you've outlined, there are a large number of people who are highly connected um, to their uh, rats and are prepared to do quite a lot to maintain their quality of life. Another point you made was your your uh, wonderful client had oxygen pumped through the the um, house and that's probably you know we we have a little bit of a rule that um, that uh, we do our 
we often have rats that are brought in as a bit of an emergency to the front counter and we will transfer them to an oxygen-rich environment. Um, but I think if they're dependent on that, if that's something that, um, that they can't, you know, that we take them out of after a couple of hours and they relapse despite other supportive treatments, then that's probably a time we need to talk about long-term quality of life issues and maybe consider uh, humane euthanasia before the calming and beneficial effects of high oxygen tension are lost to that animal. Absolutely. And I think that's the, the end result with most of these, unfortunately, that we mentioned very early on in this week's podcast in that it often gets them in the end, the respiratory disease. And I tend to start mentioning the euthanasia word fairly early on in these cases, even even in those mild cases. And and we give all of these owners a, a handout on chronic respiratory disease that outlines the process of trying to make life happy for whatever length of time that that rat or, or mouse has. And and we, we start talking to the clients fairly early on about the fact that at some stage we need to start stepping back and looking at the patient and deciding what what the quality of life is with that animal and I think the earlier you introduce that that concept and that discussion with the clients the, the easier it gets with with the majority of the clients um, when it does come to that stage where you look at that patient and you think gee we're, it's on all sorts of things yes we're keeping it alive but it is not having any ratty fun and um you know, ratties like to have ratty fun, don't they, Mark? And I think we've had fun this week, Mark. We've gone over the hour already. Um, so speaking of Brendan and Mark, ratty fun, um, we better get out of here, Mark. And um, I think it's time to play the outro music. Is there anything you would like to say as a final closing I comment, do Mark? I have one final closing go. comment. I, I was just quickly going to check whether you're presenting in Adelaide, Brendan. Are you presenting at the conference? Because if you are, that'll make no. two excellent people that I've got to go and listen to. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm tending to step back a bit these days, as you know, Mark, and, and we have always have more applications for the places for the presentations, um, for the time slots than, than time slots available. So I tend to try and step back a little bit and, no, I won't be presenting, but I will be helping out with our our quiz at the quiz night, the unusual quiz that we have um, during the middle of the conference that I co-host with our good friend Robert Johnson. So we will be doing the unusual quiz again this year. So um, start, um, I was going to say start um, reading up and, and thinking about potential answers to questions. But as you know, Mark, um, <laughs> There's no way you'll get the answers to the questions because we always pick the most obscure questions for the quiz um, for them. So don't bother, but it's a fun night. So, yeah, we'd love to um, have some new members there or you don't have to be a member of our group to attend the Unusual and Exotic Pet Veterinarians Conference in Adelaide this year. So um, it would be great to have some vet gurus um listeners attending there so if you are a vet guru's listener and you've attended the conference because you heard about the conference on this podcast then then please come and say hello to mark and i and 
we'll probably interview you for the podcast um, and um, it would be great to see you. So we better get out of here, Mark. So we're, we're almost into well over one hour. So um, thanks for listening, everybody, and we will talk to you next week. VetGurus.com. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Vet Gurus.